0: You're tuned in to the Tokyo Living Podcast, where we help you live a healthy and enjoyable life in one of the most amazing cities in the world. On this episode of the Injury Edition, Sam covers the topic of frozen shoulder. Tokyo Living is proudly brought to you by Club 360, changing lives through health and fitness.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Tokyo Living Podcast, Injury Edition. Today, we're going to be talking about frozen shoulder. Uh, Now, this is a common condition that we see uh, quite frequently in clinic, Um, however, there is a little bit of, uh, I guess, misunderstanding about some of um, the traits of a frozen shoulder, how it differs from other shoulder conditions, um, how we go about diagnosing it, um, perhaps some of the other diagnostic labels that are used to describe this type of pain, um, and also the the way that we go about uh, treating. Um, so frozen shoulder is something that affects people primarily in the sixth decade of life. So between fifties and sixties, um, this is why in Japan it's known as Gorjikata, and it has a, a similar sort of label in, uh, in Korea and China. Um, clinically we tend to see it more in the first half of the sixth decade. And I tend to see it, uh, I get a lot of people that are coming in between 51 and 53 with this condition, but, um, as far as a textbook, uh, description of the condition, we usually see it's between 50 and 60. Um. It is thought to affect women more than men. Um, However, that's been questioned in recent years as well. And um, for whatever reason, we do see it more on the left side uh, rather than the right. Um, So what's actually happening in the frozen shoulder? Um, We're basically getting a contrapture, uh, almost like a a shrinkening of the uh, shoulder capsule. So the shoulder capsule, um, like the term capsule suggests, uh, like a, a capsule hotel, for example, something that I've actually never experienced despite being here in Japan for 18 years, uh, essentially, you know, capsule is something that surrounds uh, something else. And essentially that's what the shoulder capsule does. Our shoulder joint is currently a relatively unstable joint. It's a big ball on a small socket. So we need all um, these other sort of constraints uh, to provide us the stability uh, that's required uh, to carry out the, the large degrees of freedom that our shoulder allows us that, uh, that other primates don't, uh, don't have. Um, part of this shoulder capsule is made up of uh, active structures. So our musculotendinous units, the, the tendons of uh, our rotator cuff muscles sort of blend into that capsule. So it does have a, a contractile element to it, but it, it also has uh, ligaments that are blended in. And those ligaments um, sub, uh, provide uh, support and structure and, um, and stability within certain movements of the shoulder by attaching certain parts of uh, the top of the arm to certain parts of uh, what we call the glenide, uh, the, the, the bit of the shoulder blade that basically articulates with the arm to form the shoulder. Then we also have this non-specific uh, collagen, this other uh, substance that surrounds, uh, it, it sort of fills in those gaps between tendons and, uh, and ligaments. And helps uh, create this capsule in the case of frozen shoulder, um, that starts to tighten up. And as a result, we get a decrease in the volume of, um, the, the joint fluid. So that, that normal lubricant that we have there in our joints, um, starts to decrease and everything starts to get a, a little bit stiffer. And this is associated with uh, an inflammatory process. So we get, um. Uh, changes in the uh, immune and, and inflammatory markers around uh, the, the region. And we also get uh, an increase in contractile proteins. And so that all starts to create uh, this painful condition. Now, in some people, uh, this comes on secondary to some sort of trauma. So we might have an injury or an incident um, that actually sparks this inflammatory cascade that then, start, that then leads to the frozen shoulder. That might happen in maybe five up to 10% of cases, um, but the majority of the cases of frozen shoulder, it usually comes on for no reason. Um, so we get to a certain age where um, perhaps we're, we're prone to those inflammatory changes and something just triggers this change in the shoulder and, uh, and we can start to get this tightening and it will usually come on gradually. So someone might report a little bit of stiffness, a little bit of tightness, then something that might, well, it feels you know, a little bit, a little bit odd. I might just try and stretch that out. And you know, over the course of uh, several weeks, it starts to get worse. And our sleep starts to be affected. We start to get night pain. And this is a hallmark signature feature of our frozen shoulder. And so this is when we're going through someone who presents with shoulder pain. Um, these these are the key things that, that we're um, trying to uh, figure out um, to help us make our words in diagnosis. So if it's, um, a, a gradual onset with no real cause and uh, we're starting to get night pain, um, then that's starting to guide us into the, down the path of looking at frozen shoulder as a diagnosis. Um, and particularly if someone sort of meets that age range, someone comes in in their twenties and thirties and they report shoulder pain. We're not really thinking of that. Um, it can happen, but it's very, very rare. And it's not the sort of the, the first thing that we think of now. Uh, in terms of differential diagnosis with a frozen shoulder, uh, the most common uh, local shoulder issue um, that we would be differentiating from would be a rotator cuff related shoulder pain. Now, this sort of, that, that broad um, spectrum of diagnosis includes things like a rotator cuff tear, you know, a partial tear or full thickness tear um, through to a rotator cuff tendinopathy or m- might be called a tendinitis, um, which I will cover in um, a future episode of the podcast. Um, but generally with those sort of conditions, we, we note that there's some sort of change that happens prior to them coming on. So someone might, the, the typical example of a, of a um, cuff related shoulder pain, someone goes out and they, uh, they paint their house and they're not used to painting the house. So they're doing a lot of shoulder movement that they're, that is unaccustomed for them and they start to develop pain or they might increase their, um, uh, exercise or general activity regime, um, either systemically or something that directly affects the shoulder, or they might include different exercises. Uh, within their um, exercise program and and that starts to, to cause pain. So there's usually some sort of change. Or if someone's playing sport, they might use um, a heavier racket or they might be playing uh, tennis in the rain, for example. Um, different equipment changes, ergonomic changes, all those little things that uh, can change load. And uh, if you're not familiar with how I discuss load, please go back and listen to episode one because that sort of sets the the framework to ha- of how we look at injuries and how we look at injury management. Um, so there's usually going to be some sort of change in load with that rotator cuff related shoulder pain. That's not so common with the frozen shoulder. Also with the sleeping and the night pain, generally with a rotator cuff issue, it will be a lot more painful when someone is lying on the affected side. So if I have a rotator cuff issue on the left side and I'm lying on the left, it will be painful. But if I can get in a position lying on my right and maybe supporting the left side, it's not going to be as bad. Frozen shoulder, it's a little bit different. It will tend to be painful regardless of what position we're in. Um, So when we fall asleep, we get changes, our immune system starts to slow down um, and because of that change in the immune uh, environment around the shoulder, um, it will start to then complain and start to to, um, be more sensitive.
0: Club 360 is Tokyo's premier health, fitness and rehabilitation centre, offering physiotherapy, personal training, group fitness classes, boxing, sports massage, Pilates and nutrition consultations. With two full-time locations in Mota-Azabu and Higashi-Azabu, as well as satellite physiotherapy practices in Koen and Yokohama, Club 360 boasts a team of high-level practitioners from all over the world ready to take care of all your injury and fitness needs and guide you on a path towards a healthy and happier life. Come visit us at club360.jp or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and TikTok.
1: Now, I'm just going to briefly touch on some of the other terms that are used for frozen shoulder. Um, now, this condition has been described um since uh, eighteen ninety six um, by several authors and uh, as we' go- as we've gone through the journey of understanding this condition um the name that's used to describe it has has changed as well um so originally in eighteen ninety six um duplay uh, referred to this as um, a scapulohumeralis, scapulohumeralid hum- um the French doctor, um, I'm sure I'm pronouncing that incorrectly. Um, but, uh, he, he basically attributed this to inflammation of the, uh, what we call the subacromial bursam, so fat sac that sits underneath the articulation between the collarbone and shoulder length. Um, and, and that was used for a little bit. Um. The biggest change, um, where the first person to describe, uh, frozen shoulder was a surgeon named, uh, Codman in, uh, 1934. Now he had also um, previously described this as adhesive capsulitis about 10 years earlier, um, and he thought at the time, um, that, uh, it was actually parts of the shoulder capsule that were sticking, that adhering to the, um, the top of the arm, um, but then he later, um found that uh, by operating on patients that uh, he didn't find those adhesions. So he then started um, rejecting that uh, terminology and started to refer to it as for his shoulder. Um, then we had uh, Littman, uh in 1934, um, who felt that it was more an issue of the biceps. So the biceps, everyone knows, are uh, the, the muscles that you flex to show how uh, muscular you uh, are. Um That actually attaches up into the shoulder, and it's one of our major uh, shoulder stabilizing muscles. Uh, and he felt that it was more an issue of the biceps uh, that was causing the pain. Uh, and then we had uh, Navasia in 1945, who came back and uh, and, and went again to this adhesive capsulitis narrative, um, again, arguing that the pain was due to adhesions, um, similar to like um, a, a plaster, uh, as you would sort of uh, apply plaster to structure. Um, that sort of adhesion that was causing that sort of stiffness within the shoulder. However, um, Lombard, Bunker and others, uh, since then, have looked into this uh, and and, uh, many other uh, surgeons and and researchers have looked into this and and not found uh, these adhesions present. And so we've gone back to now using uh, the term frozen shoulder or uh, in 2016, Jeremy Lewis proposed uh, a frozen shoulder contracture syndrome. um, focusing on the the contracture and the shortening of the the shoulder capsule. Uh, I personally don't like the term adhesive capsulitis. One, because it doesn't sort of fit with um, pathophysiologically, what we know about the condition. And it also um, may conjure up some images within the patient uh, of something being stuck within the shoulder. And that may prevent them from being active within a a, a rehabilitation program um, and decrease their movement due to fear of movement and things like that, which is not really what we want. Um, Whilst I'm a big fan of Jeremy Lewis's work and I sort of consider him a mentor, I also don't like the term syndrome when we can avoid it. Um, so for me, I like to uh, stick with the term frozen shoulder and then from there go into an explanation to the patient about what what this actually means. Um, so when we go back to the onset, um, your frozen shoulder is one of um, stiffness uh, being one of the uh, predominant factors. So um, with rotator cuff related shoulder pain, you might have full range of motion. You may have you may be able to sort of get to the ends of your range, but you might have a, a catch of pain um, during the middle of that, especially if it's uh, um, more of on the tendinopathy end of the continuum, as opposed to a full thickness or part, partial thickness tear, where weakness is not so much of a problem. We may, may still have per, per, uh, full range of motion. We may just have a little bit of soreness through that range. With a frozen shoulder, it's stiffness. We, we can only lift it up so far. And the further we lift up, the stiffer and more painful it becomes. Um, Within the progression of frozen shoulder, we usually go through phases. Now, um, there have been sort of between two and four phases uh, described for this. And for a long time, we sort of worked within these three phases of a freezing, frozen and thawing phase. And, um, you know, freezing, obviously things are getting stiffer. Uh, frozen, things are frozen, they're stiff, and then thawing, thawing out and starts to, to get stiff, uh, Start that you lose some of that stiffness and start to um, regain your mobility and function. Um, more recent times though, we've found it easier from a treatment um, perspective to put things basically in two categories, uh, pain and stiffness, and stiffness more than pain. So we start off with pain being more of a permanent factor, uh, and then as the pain decreases, we're left more with more of this stiffness. Um, and the way that we manage the condition in those phases, uh, and it's not like uh, you, you ticked over a certain phase and then you're done, you're into the next stage. It does happen uh, progressively, but it does sort of guide us in terms of our treatment. Um Diagnosis wise, uh, frozen shoulder is very easy to diagnose, which is why for me, um, I find it a little frustrating when uh, misdiagnosis of this condition is being made. Um, With a rotator cuff related shoulder pain, you'll generally have pain on active movement and resisted contraction. But when you're, um, especially if the patient isn't too irritable and it's not too severe, um, we can generally take the patient through a full range of motion um, without any pain or with minimal symptoms and certainly no restriction in range was a frozen shoulder, the passive range and active range will be, uh, be the same. It'll be equally restricted. And in frozen shoulder, we need uh, to make a definitive diagnosis of frozen shoulder. We need a restriction in external rotation. So if you're watching the video version of this, this is where you've basically arms by the side and you're rotating outwards, or arms up here and rotating outwards, there's different degrees and different positions we can test external rotation, um, but there will be a restriction. And typically this will be at least 50% by the time we're actually giving a patient a, um, a diagnostic label of frozen shoulder. Um, imaging within frozen shoulder uh, is, is generally not required in terms of like MRI and ultrasound. Um, People often get sent for an MRI and will come back with findings of uh, things like a um, fibrosis of the rotator interval. Uh, now that does happen in frozen shoulder, but it uh, does happen with other conditions as well. Um, so that's not particularly helpful from a diagnostic perspective. And you know, sometimes we might have a patient who has clinically signs of uh, other conditions, such as a rotator cuff pa- uh, related shoulder pain, but they have this Um, fibrosis or rotator interval come up on a scan, and then that might guide um, the practitioner into managing it as a frozen shoulder, which has a different sort of management and course of management. Um, However, x-ray is important. So very, 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 very occasionally. um, And it's not something I've seen within my career. um, But sometimes we might have uh, some nasty non-musculoskeletal conditions that masquerade. Um, so we can we can have a tumour in the top of the arm. Uh, we can have uh, what we call an avascular necrosis where basically the top of the arm starts to rot. um and these are these are horrible conditions and um obviously life threatening. So if someone is reporting frozen shoulder rela- sh- frozen shoulder like symptoms, um uh, I usually, uh, well, usually I always uh, make them get an x-ray um just to rule out um these these nasty other conditions that that might be masquerading. Um, But apart from that, that's what we really need as a diagnosis. So uh, in the early stages, uh, this may present similarly to a a rotator cuff or landed shoulder pain. So that's why it's. And we, we're on the fence with the diagnosis early on. Um, I'll usually go about treating uh, in, in whatever uh, working diagnosis I have at the time, but then I'll constantly monitor symptoms. And uh, if someone is starting to lose external rotation range of motion, despite going through our normal management, um, and I actually had this presentation two days ago with someone who we thought had a, a, um, a rotator cuff related shoulder pain that had an acute onset of their pain. Um, and they didn't have restriction in range of motion, we started treating and over time, the uh, external rotation range of motion uh, started to decrease and decrease um, to the point where now I'm confident that this person does have a frozen shoulder and that does sort of change our management plan.
0: Are you in need of a good massage? Club 360 boasts a team of experienced massage therapists specialized in sports, Swedish, deep tissue, prenatal and postpartum massage techniques and are able to tailor treatment to your specific needs. Mention Tokyo Living to receive 30% off your first massage for first-time nurses. Contact info at club360.jp for more details.
1: In terms of uh, treatment of frozen shoulder, uh, so early on, uh, we want to uh, try to manage pain. So, um... It used to be the case where we try to stretch through these conditions, and later on, that that might be a strategy that we could employ. But early on, stretching will tend to make things worse. So if we've got a frozen shoulder, it's early in the the um, the, the diagnosis, or it's early in the stage of the condition, we don't want really to be stretching because that is going to increase pain levels. Now it's important to note that. Uh, it might increase pain levels, but not really going to increase, uh, it's not going to worsen the condition. And that's something that I want to educate patients with early on, is that, you know, you're safe to move. If you get a bit of pain, you know, it's it's going to be a bit sore, it might be a bit irritable afterwards, but you're not making things worse. So we don't want to install a fear of movement, but we do want to install a healthy avoidance of painful movements, just so that the person's not experiencing excessive amounts of pain. Um, we're understanding now that uh, early on in a frozen shoulder in the painful stage, a corticosteroid injection or up to three corticosteroid injections in possibly in different sites, So both the, the actual joint capsule in the center of the joint, and also in that area that I discussed earlier, the subacrobial region under that area where the shoulder blade and collarbone meet, um, a, a, a steroid injection in that area, very effective in settling down pain and also decreasing the contractile proteins that I referred to before. So. Now um, you've got these substances around the shoulder that are basically, um, hunting in on that, that, uh, that capsule and, and trying to get it to tighten up and the steroid injection can actually make a big change to the number of contractile proteins in the area and really put a, a, a uh, put the brakes on the progression of the condition, uh, not, uh, resolve it completely, but can make a big difference and, uh, can decrease the length of time that it takes to recover. In the literature. Um, and this is fairly scary for those people going through the condition. Um, but the, the average time to recovery for a frozen shoulder is actually two and a half years. So anything that we can do to shorten that process, uh, is obviously going to be advantageous. So if someone understands the risks associated with uh, an injection, um, and is comfortable with the, the slight discomfort that uh, occurs at the time, then it's something that I do encourage. It's not something that I encourage for a lot of conditions. I'm not a big fan of uh, injections as a whole. Um, we have got to ask 360 uh, episode on injections a little while ago if you want to hear um, a little bit more of a, a broader sort of overview on injections. Um, but for this stage in a frozen shoulder, it can be very effective. From there, um, like I said, education is a big piece. We, we want to get the shoulder moving, but we don't want to push it to ends of, end of range. So we'll get people generally doing gentle sort of active movements within their uh, available range of motion, and then progress to doing some strength work through that side. Um, because we do want to try and maintain strength as much as possible. So as we come out of the frozen shoulder and we're, we're uh, regaining our range of motion, um, we uh, are able to rehabilitate the strength and the functions uh, quicker than if we essentially ignored the uh, pain in the brain. As we get um, uh, basically stability on the condition so that uh, the stiffness isn't, isn't worsening, we can start to implement some very gentle range of motion exercises, um, starting to push into the range, but starting to use techniques where we can decrease the amount of muscle guarding. Um, the study uh, for years, a few years ago out of Canberra uh, where um, patients Uh, were basically put under general anesthetic. So they're put to sleep, frozen shoulder patients, and uh, they had their range of motion tested. And in um, all cases, it was actually a lot better when they were asleep. So uh, even though there's a structural thickening and tightening of the capsule, there's also uh, um, a a cognitive component, uh, a muscle guarding component that um, our body knows that something's gonna be painful. So it will put the brakes on it and basically protect us from moving through that range. So we have some strategies in terms of exercise and manual therapy techniques that we can use to try and unlock some of that movement and decrease some of that muscle guarding. And that's generally where we we start. Rather than just pushing into resistance, whether that be structural resistance or muscle guarding resistance that's likely to make things worse in terms of pain, we tend to try and work on um, techniques that allow relaxation of the muscles and allow us to get further through range. Uh, we also want to continue uh, our general exercise. So as we've talked about before in the load uh, episodes, um, general exercise is key to decreasing the sensitivity associated with pain. So we want to keep people as active as possible uh, in terms of general exercise and then also training the non-affected side. So by training, if I've got a frozen shoulder on my right, left-hand side, um, we want to do strength training on the, the right-hand side um, to maintain strength on the left. And again, we have a um, an Ask360 episode on uh, con- um Cross-education, uh, training non-affected sides um, to, to gain function and strength on the opposite side. Um, uh, but also we have a, a, an inhibition, a pain inhibition mechanism where if we train one side, we can get some decreases in the, the, the pain uh, on the other side um, so, uh, through cortical processes. Um, so definitely focusing on general activity, focusing as always on doing everything that we can rather than focusing on the things that we can't do.
0: Club 360 are proud to announce the launch of our online corporate ergonomics and wellness program. This program is delivered in bite sized chunks of 1 to 5 minute video clips every day for 12 weeks and covers topics such as pain, injury prevention, best setup, productivity, all cause mortality, as well as a guide to 20 easy to implement desk based exercises to keep you active throughout the workday. We also have an optional test and certification available.
1: As things start to improve, so especially as sleep starts to improve, um, and hopefully that's earlier rather than later, if we've gone through that process of administering the corticosteroid injection, injection, um, we can start to push our range of motion a little. So um, as we're dealing with more stiffness rather than pain, we might push into a little bit more of that resistance. Where possible, we still use techniques that um, elicit a, a decrease in muscular guarding to um, to achieve that, that uh, change in range of motion, but we can start to push a little bit more because generally at that stage, the patient will have um, uh, less irritability, less pain after exercise and, and things like that. Um, if we get into the stiffness phase and things really aren't changing, um, then another uh, injection procedure we might not consider at that stage is what we call a hydrodilatation uh, or a hydrodistension, where we're basically injecting um, saline into the joint, but we're injecting enough that we're almost sort of stretching things out um, and then if things still aren't uh, improving, there are some surgical options, uh, such as a surgical debridement of the cuff, or we call them manipulation under anesthetic, where we put you in the sleep and we <laughs> drink it back. Now, all those three things, so hydro dust distension, um, you know, some uh, positive results there with the surgical procedures, really not that effective. And um, in our experience, we haven't had a patient that's needed to go down that route, um, but occasionally someone might be very impatient with uh, the length of time that it does take to get better and is willing to take the risks associated with surgery um, in that, uh, you know, it might make things actually worse if uh, we go down that route, but that if the patient's at a risk, um, that's a risk that they're willing to take, then that's something that uh, we can go through with the patient at that stage. Now, one other thing in relation to frozen shoulder, um, whilst most cases uh, in my career and what we've seen in the, the literature sort of been. Uh, individuals in that sort of 15 to 60 age range. Um, we have seen in recent times some younger uh, patients come in with this, this condition, and um, it has actually been brought on by uh, the COVID 19 vaccination. Now, um, because most people have had several in, in vaccinations and they're not sort of going through the vaccination process now, we're not seeing it as much, but sort of six to 12 months ago, we were seeing a lot of frozen shoulders that came in on within a week to a month after administ- administration of vaccination. Now we do have this condition called, uh, it's known by the acronym SERVA, so shoulder injury related to vaccine administration. And this was first described in the research in 2010. Um, but obviously in the last sort of year or two, we've had um, a lot more people getting vaccinated and a lot more people being vaccinated by people that don't usually do vaccinations. Uh, and as a result, there has been some issues with vaccination technique where they've injected basically too high up on the shoulder rather than the belly of the deltoid muscle. They've gone too high and actually pierced the subacromial bursa, which is then, uh, and the sub, subdeltoid bursa, I'm sorry, um, which has then caused an inflammatory cascade, um, which has then led to a frozen shoulder. So Uh, This is something to look out for. If you have had a vaccination, um, it's still relatively rare rare for the number of people that are getting uh, vaccinated or have been vaccinated over the last 18 months. But if you have have had a vaccination and you've had shoulder pain come on after that, um, then uh, you might want to look into a frozen shoulder as a potential diagnosis. If you do have any follow-up questions related to frozen shoulder, please send them through. And uh, as always, if you are experiencing uh, symptoms, um, if you're in the Tokyo region, come and see us. Uh, If you're not, um, go and see an experienced medical practitioner. Um, And if you're not sure, (laughs) if you're in an area where um, you don't have access to uh, or you're you're not aware of um, where to go, um, we may have some contacts in your area. So please reach out. So thank you very much for listening. Um, if you do have other musculoskeletal conditions or topics that you would like me to speak on, um, please send them through and I'll do my best to keep providing some, some useful information to you guys. Um, look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Take care.
0: Thank you for listening to the Tokyo Living Podcast. If you enjoy the content, we'd love for you to rate, review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you'd like to enjoy your podcast. We look forward to seeing you again on the next episode. Have a healthy and active week.